we're going to have a couple of uh, introductory talks. The first one, let me get set up here, is Dave Lyles. As I said, Dave is at the University of California, San Diego. Um, he uh, is an infectious disease person. He's uh, been involved uh, for a number of years in, in hep C treatment management, uh, uh, has several areas of interest and focus, including uh, uh, issues of viral resistance, and uh, has uh, served on the, uh, the ASLP IDSA guidelines committee. He's a current active member. Uh, Jen is also a member of that group. Um, and I was a charter member of that group and have rotated off, so just blame me for everything. <laughs> right. It was there before that you didn't like. Um, so uh, Dave is going to start with the basics, what you need to know about hepatitis C infection. Positive. 
I will say that this is certainly a lower bound, if not an underestimate, of the number of persons with chronic Hep C infection in the United States. Um, there have been several studies that have tried to look at populations that are missed by NHANES, veterans, prisoners, homeless, etc. Those are all tend to be high seroprevalence or high prevalence populations. And Ken's group is one of the groups that looked in and published in Liver International in 2011 that um, estimated that the, the, the number of persons in the United States could be as high as five to seven million persons if you start to include some of those groups that are missed by NHANES. So certainly no shortage of patients with chronic Hep C in the United States. If we step back and take a global look at the genotype distribution of hepatitis C, so um, there are six, now seven, accepted kind of major genotypes of hepatitis C with other subtypes. Um, and obviously genotype, as we'll talk later, is a very important consideration in our treatment approaches to hepatitis C. Also affects natural history in some instances, particularly with genotype three being a more rapid or aggressive disease progression. And so if you look first in the United States, we're predominantly a genotype one country or area with genotype 1A of the one subtype predominating. Um, but Globally, if you look, genotype 1 is about half of all hepatitis C across the globe, um, but 30% are genotype 3 roughly across the globe. And again, not only does that disease, that genotype carry uh, a more aggressive disease progression, it is also probably the one that's left that's still the hardest to treat for us with uh, our modern DAA therapy. So uh, important noting that um, genotype 3 is certainly prevalent across the globe. And then a lot of you are familiar with HIV. So this is HIV group M which about 90% of HIV infections across the world are group M. And just comparing the diversity of HIV group M to, to just genotype one of hepatitis C to give you an idea of how diverse hepatitis C is as a virus. And that's in fact probably some of the reasons why at least our earlier therapies didn't work against all the genotypes. Um, where we've just had more recent therapies now where we truly have pan-genotypic therapies that are active against really all the genotypes. So if we look a little closer at um, hepatitis C and its impact on morbidity and mortality in the United States in particular, this is data from the CDC and the Czechs cohort looking at um, mortality attributed to chronic hepatitis C infection. And I think all of you have probably seen a version of this slide where about 2006 or so, um, we saw hepatitis C, mortality due to hepatitis C now outstrip HIV as a cause of death. Um, you know, obviously in red is a reflection of the, the dramatic decrease in HIV-related mortality due to effective antiretroviral therapy primarily. And hepatitis C continuing to increase due to now the majority of patients who acquired hepatitis C that did so in the 60s, 70s, or 80s have now had 20, 30, or more years living with that chronic infection to now start to see liver-related mortality from that. Um, and that trend has just continued. The most recent year the CDC did this analysis was in 2013, and you kind of see here um, this continued increase of mortality related to hepatitis C. Um, about 20,000 deaths in 2013. I will say from this Czechs cohort, um, some other data is, is likely that we're underestimating by quite a bit the mortality due to hepatitis C. And their survey, I think it was only about a third um, were actually captured if you looked at ICD-9 or ICD-10 codes and actually had hepatitis C listed on death certificates. Um, and so we probably are underestimating hepatitis C mortality by quite a bit. And if you look at the mean age of death, 59, that was well below, obviously, the mean age of death for the U.S. population in general. So certainly a lot of mortality related to hepatitis C. Now here's the other bad thing that's going on right now with hepatitis C epidemiology. You can see here, this is the estimated number of acute infections with hepatitis C. 
Um, obviously, that's a difficult task to estimate acute infections because most patients are asymptomatic or oligosymptomatic. They don't generally present with jaundice, which is easily recognizable. So many patients won't present to the medical provider to be assessed even. And even if they do come to medical attention, a lot of times it's going to be missed, um, acute hepatitis C. But these are based on CDC estimates. You can see there was this trend of decreasing um, number of acute cases starting in 2000. Now, you know, if we, the CDC has other graphs. If we took this back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, this would be off the chart, right? The 60s, 70s, and 80s were up in the hundreds of thousands of cases a year. Um, before we had screening of the blood supply, a lot of that due to transfusion, as well as in other percutaneous exposures and injection drug use. So to put that in context, this is still a relatively no, low number, but the, the disturbing portion has been the last several years, where year over year, um, by CDC estimates, it's been about a 40 to 50% increase year over year in acute cases. Um, and again, I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and we'll, I'll show you some other slides, but certainly um, others uh, can talk about this as well. Um, you know, some of it obviously has been centered on what's been going on, at least first recognized. I wouldn't say it's just going on in the Midwest, but really recognized there in terms of uh, prescription drug abuse first, then transitioning to injection drug abuse, opioid abuse. Uh, heroin and things like this came to light, obviously, with the um, recognition of the HIV epidemic in Indiana. Of course, the majority of those patients also had hepatitis C co-infection, and actually at the retrovirus meeting um, last year, you know, the CDC presented, there's obviously a much, actually, much bigger outbreak of hepatitis C surrounding this epidemic, and I think their most recent estimates of their HIV positive patients was about 94% or 95% were co-infected with hep C. But again, many more hep C cases outside of these HIV um, this was something more recent from MMWR in July. Um, you know, thinking about the other consequences or potential consequences of acute hepatitis C in, in young persons, and, and this is the population that it's being seen in now, is the potential for vertical transmission as well. This was data from Kentucky specifically, looking at trends in the proportion of mothers who were positive for hepatitis C, the proportion of infants that were screened, and the proportion of infants that were, were positive for hepatitis C. And the dark bar here is the, the national um, percentage and you see a slight uptick um, and then in dotted here are females in Kentucky, the proportion, um, the rates of um, uh, per 100,000, you see, see this dramatic increase in positivity in women of childbearing potential in Kentucky. And then same thing with infants in terms of those that were screened um, for hepatitis C after birth. And so again, you can see 124% increase in infants born to HCV infected mothers over this um, time period. Um, that was 2011. This was a separate study done in Philadelphia. Um, it was from several years earlier, it was just published in CID, um, looking at mothers who were ACB seropositive, and then looking at how well, this was through Children's Hospital, I think it was CHOP in Philadelphia, how well the infants were, were they effectively screened or were they appropriately screened? And it was, as you can see, only a minority of infants that really got appropriate screening for hepatitis C. And then this is not just, as I've been alluding to, a phenomenon in the Midwest and Appalachian area. It's, it's really, across the country. You can see here, this was, again, data from the CDC in 2014, they published in CID. And you can see a lot of red states, and they're kind of from one end of the continent to the other, and that would be a 200% increase um, from comparisons in 2006 to 2012 in terms of HCV incidence. In, in younger persons, less than 30. And again, you can see California as well for a 200% increase. Um, the top five were in kind of the Midwest, Mid-Atlantic area, um, and down into Florida. And then the other thing about this kind of recognition of this new uh, epidemic of acute hepatitis C is it's not 
localized to the cities. This is rural areas um, that we're seeing a large increase in non-urban areas where you're seeing really a, a jump in the incidence. Yeah. I Sorry. have a question about um, treating women out of childbearing age. Yeah. Are interested in hearing from it? So do you tend to treat them like when you diagnose them, or would it be more like waiting until they're planning for pregnancy? So, I mean, we would generally try to treat them as soon as we could if, if they're childbearing potential. I mean, it is kind of something you can use to access medications, right? Most insurers, even our state, like in California and Medi-Cal, you can access new DAAs, even if they don't have the fibrosis staging criteria, to access them by, by using that as an indication for treatment and as supported in the, the guidelines. Um, so we'll treat them. I mean, obviously you want to make sure the patient's ready otherwise, um, but if everything else being equal, we're not going to wait until she's, you know, right before the woman is going to actually try to become pregnant, right? We're going to do it as soon as Um, so to talk about the natural history of hepatitis C infection, a lot of you are probably familiar with this, but um, it's always important to remember after exposure or acute infection, uh, a proportion will clear uh, that acute infection and they'll be HCV antibody positive, but will no longer be RNA positive, so they've had resolved infection. Um, it's often quoted as 25%, that number is actually quite variable depending on the specific population you're talking about, both age and, and sex. Um, impact that quite a bit. Younger age, more likely to clear. Uh, women tend to clear more frequently than men. And then IL-28B status, that is one place. We don't use it really in therapy anymore, but IL-28B status certainly does predict who is more likely to clear uh, acute infection. Um, once you, um, if you don't clear and go into chronic infection, there's also variability here with um, chronic, within chronically infected persons, um, some will have progressive liver fibrosis and ultimately go on to develop cirrhosis. Um, earlier studies said about 23, at about 20 years, about 20% of persons with chronic infection will have cirrhosis. Um, of course, that's quite variable on an individual level. Um, it depends on a lot of things. Drinking alcohol obviously can speed that up. Um, steatosis, um, maybe that's part of the reason genotype three, as we alluded to, is a little more virulent or progressive because of its own steatosis, or if you have fatty liver disease from other causes, that may be really any other liver insult is going to make you more likely to progress faster. And then HIV co-infection, um, even in the era of highly effective antiretroviral therapy, we still believe that co-infected patients have a, a little different natural history. Antiretroviral therapy certainly can slow that progression to some extent. We've got multiple studies that suggest that, but they also suggest they don't come back to somebody who has HCV mono-infected in terms of their progression. And then once you get, oh, yeah, go ahead. How about pot? How about pot? Yeah, so um, there was an in vitro study a number of years ago that suggested in vitro that maybe marijuana 
accelerated fibrosis progression or activation, I think it was of hepatic stellate cells. And then there was one clinical study that kind of suggested, I think a French study, um, but then actually most recently from here, Marion Peters in the WISE cohort, they looked in their HIV co-infected women and looked by marijuana use and didn't find an association. So I, I think it's probably really still unsettled as to whether it really accelerates fibrosis progression or not. I know in our clinic, everyone uses marijuana, so I'm not sure we, could, we would even be able to tell now because everybody's using it, but um, I, I think we truly don't know. I, we focus much more on alcohol um, than we do marijuana, probably partly because we think that's a losing battle anyway. So. What's the prevalence of fatty liver disease in the modern era? In the modern era? Um, Zobear just did a, a worldwide survey of prevalence, but I don't, uh, I mean, in the United States, I think it's what estimated 20, 30%, 10, is it that high? Do we know? So fatty liver is probably around 30, 40%, but fatty liver is not a disease. I think we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next, the next uh, discussion slides. And so then once you get to cirrhosis, this is where problems start to occur. Um, and again, within cirrhosis though, there's different groups. A lot may be relatively stable and have solely progressive disease, um, but about 5% per year, 4 to 5% per year are going to make a transition to what we would call end-stage liver disease. So cirrhosis is a histologic diagnosis, really. Now we often diagnose cirrhosis, and Ken will talk more about this, by non-invasive measures, but it's really a histologic description of the liver. And then end-stage liver disease comes in where there are clinical sequelae that are recognizable. Um, from that cirrhosis of the liver, so ascites, encephalopathy, things like that. And again, I think Ken's going to touch on this more. Also, once you reach cirrhosis, that's when the risk of hepatocytic carcinoma at least really goes up. We certainly have probably all seen people that have, are not thought to have quite have reached cirrhosis yet, but have at least bridging fibrosis and can develop hepatocytic carcinoma. Um, just another point about this is, you know, we have trouble predicting in these states. So once it becomes chronically infected, unfortunately, we're not great at predicting who's going to progress to cirrhosis and who's not. We use some evidence of fibrosis along the way as an indication that they're accumulating fibrosis and assume that's going to continue, but we're, we're not great at predicting that. And then once somebody has cirrhosis, it also, there are different ways you can look at them, their, their labs and things like this and what other habits they may have. But again, we're not really that good at predicting who among cirrhotics is going to be stable and who's going to go on to decompensation. And the final point is, you know, this 20% at 20 years, there are some studies from cohorts that have been followed for very long periods of time, a German cohort of women who were all infected at the same time with contaminated rogam, that does suggest as you get further out that fibrosis progression is not linear. In other words, it, it seems to accelerate um, the longer you have chronic hepatitis C. Now, in that cohort, there were coexisting things like fatty liver disease that also became more prevalent in the population as time went on, so there may be other insults, but it's just important to remember that this is not a linear progression. And these are just some paired biopsy studies that looked at progression. I won't belabor these. These are really concepts that are in that uh, other graphic, but this is some of the data that underlies that in terms of um, cirrhosis transition to decompensation and, and the movement from bridging fibrosis to So what about the future burden of hepatitis C? There's lots of modeling studies that try to estimate, you know, with this, all the people that were infected and how long they've been infected using modeling to, to talk about when they'll transition to different stages. Um, the things I think to, to focus on here would be to look at cirrhotics, so compensated cirrhotics. The 
this is a, a more recent one. There's lots of different ones, and they all vary slightly in when they estimate peak cirrhosis will be. When's the highest proportion of patients in the United States that are going to have cirrhosis? Obviously, we're already coming down um, in terms of the, the total number of patients with hepatitis C in the United States um, because patients have died, uh, and we don't have as many infections as we did back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But again, probably sometime between the next 10 years to 15 or 20 in some series, we're probably going to reach the peak number of patients with cirrhosis, um, and decompensation will probably, uh, again, within the next decade or 15 years, kind of reach the maximum number of patients with decompensated hepatitis C-related liver disease. Um, and this is just showing, again, the prevalence, and that we've already reached the peak prevalence, but the peak cost, because most of the costs are incurred when patients reach advanced stages of liver disease related to hepatitis C, and I suppose this could account for the medications now, too, um, that the costs are still going to go up related to hepatitis C. So all of you are probably very familiar with the HIV continuum of care. This is the HCV cascade. Um, and one of the, the big things still, one of the big problems with hepatitis C is right at the beginning, right? In terms of the, the total population we think is infected and how many have actually been diagnosed. Um, most studies are around probably 50% are undiagnosed or unaware of their diagnosis, although some studies would even say higher proportions. Um, and then after diagnosis, getting them linked to care, obviously doing an actual HCV RNA test to document chronic infection, and then treatment in SVR. Um, so, and at this end of the cascade, obviously, a lot of work to do as well. Hopefully, and I, I have the impression, or I feel like with the new DAs, we should be doing better at this. We don't really have that much new data to, to look at that. But hopefully, we're doing much better now. At least certainly in the portion that get treated and then get cured, it should be pretty high. So how do you identify patients? Well, again, we already talked about the portion that are estimated to be unaware of their infection status. These are just some different studies pointing at different numbers for this. This is one of the studies I alluded to that suggests maybe up to 70% were unaware of their HCV infection status. Again, the NHANES data, which is largely a lot of the data that Dr. Holmberg um, in the New England Journal published on, about 50% were unaware. Um, and here you see another private, and this is Kaiser, um, about 40% were unaware. Um, and then this is, you know, how well do we do as healthcare providers in testing for hepatitis C? Um, so again, I think this is from the, the Kaiser group looking at Kaiser uh, in different places across the country. Um, you know, getting close to a million patients with at least one encounter and not been previously tested for hepatitis C. So only 13% at this point were tested. This was in 2012. Um, percent were positive, about 5%. And then you know, some of these are, are areas where obviously can be a lot of improvement. So patients, even with elevated LFTs on several um, occasions presenting to care, were not necessarily tested for hepatitis C. Um, only uh, 44%, um, the, but the positivity rate if they were tested was about 8%. So who should be tested? Um, to remind, remind you that the Preventative Services Task Force uh, testing hepatitis C um, in the birth cohort is a grade B recommendation, so it should be covered by insurance, and that's the birth cohort from 45 to 65, doing it one time without really any other risk factor or ascertainment for risk factors, so at one time across the board. And then these are other all risk groups that should be tested for hepatitis C. Um, injection drug use, obviously, blood transfusion before 92, um, et cetera. You can read all these down here. Um, one of the interesting areas, and I already talked about the, the birth cohort screening um, one time, again, adults born from 45 to 65. This was based largely on the fact that when they looked at the disease burden of hepatitis C in the United States, about 75% of the disease burden was felt to kind of exist in this population, at least at the time they looked. 
Um, I think something we have to start thinking about more and more is, is this even good enough doing the 45 to 65 birth cohort plus risk factor-based screening? Um, and whether it's time to maybe start thinking about moving to things like universal screening for hepatitis C. Um, and so, you know, I think un unidentified infections um, are likely in those not engaged in routine primary medical care. In other words, patients accessing emergency departments for their um, medical care, really. Um, and increasingly, I think with these, what I talked about, the epidemiology, they're going to be outside the birth cohort, um, particularly more recent infections or incident infections. And so there have been several studies um, about screening in emergency departments. They did it at UAB in Alabama. Um, there they did look at the birth cohort, but of patients presenting to their ED and found an 11% zero prevalence, so significantly higher than the estimated national average. Um, they also looked by insurance status, and what's even higher in those on Medicaid or uninsured patients presenting. And then uh, in Baltimore they did this. Um, Dave Thomas's group looked at those above 17 and found a 14% zero prevalence. And then Ken's group in Cincinnati also did this in their emergency department, looked at those 18 to less than or equal to 16 years and found about, again, about a 14% serial prevalence. And this, um, in Cincinnati, and Ken can speak more about the study, it was in 2008 to 2009, and I think there's been significant change even since then in the epidemiology or the HCV epidemic there. Um, a common theme with, with at least these two um, was that if you just limited yourself to looking at the birth cohort and then at least identify risk factors or risk factors that were recognized, you're going to miss about a quarter of infections that are coming through an emergency department. So, um, and again, this theme that most are unaware of their infection. So um, I think it's certainly something we should be thinking about. I'm just wondering, do you know the cost of the So it depends on which you're doing. If you're doing the rapid point of care test, I think at least the price to buy it is about 18 to $20, I think, per test. Now, how much they get charged, how much the hospital charges is, I don't know that. I know when we look at doing screening studies, and then the, the regular old antibody that gets sent off from blood, we at least we could get a price of about seven dollars per test. Is that uh, five bucks? Yeah. Rate of false positivity. Sure. Um, so um, it's low. It obviously depends on the population. We get like with the ELISA, the third generation ELISA now. I mean, the sensitivity and specificity are both ninety. 9% for both of those. I'm going to have a number really for a false positive rate in my head. So if population with very low pretest probability of disease, it's actually still pretty high. Our, our assay comes back just positive or negative. We don't get the titer, but um, 
I'm assuming those low titer results, since they're not considered positive, are potentially more likely to be false positives or non-specific. Um, there, you know, and one of the other questions would be: Does the antibody do those titers wane over time after a true exposure, uh, a long period out? And there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that, but I don't think it's terribly robust. So in general, when they're looked at, um, it usually comes out to about the, you know, the 70% range you're gonna have positive viral loads. They tend to be pretty much consistent with you know, what we think of as being exposed and then the percentage of going to chronic infection. Generally assume that most of these are you know, true positive antibodies, not false positives, I think, and that they've cleared. Because it's pretty consistent, it's about 30% RNA negative. Oh, did I just have repeated that question? Did you get it? It's just there's a recording. Yeah. So either the mic or record. Sure. So. I'll remember to record. So here is the, the diagnostic testing. So most, I think almost all of this is now moved over the third generation ELISA, which looks at uh, antibodies to several of the different um, viral proteins. Um, and again, no positive antibody only means exposure, or it could be a false positive, but otherwise means exposure. And then again, you proceed there to doing a viral load. Um, and a positive viral load would be the definition, not HBC, HCV viral load would be the definition of active infection. In most instances, we assume it's chronic infection, it doesn't necessarily need to be loaded, it could obviously be acute infection as well. Um, and then genotyping line probassays versus other, uh, other assays that look at binding of oligonucleotides to usually the five prime ETRs involved in genotyping and then the NS5D uh, region. Um, and you know, genotyping is still necessary, certainly. Um, we'll talk about some of the regimens that were just approved that are now pangenotypic and where your treatment approaches really look very similar for most patient populations, but I think certainly for the foreseeable future, I, I, I see us continuing to do genotyping. Um, obviously, because a lot of places you won't necessarily have your choice of what you can access as well, and so your insurers are, are essentially going to make you get a genotype um, if you want to access therapies anyway. But I, I think medically there's still plenty of reasons to do it right now. And we'll talk more about those as we go. Um, so screening for acute hepatitis C and HIV, I think this is an important, and we've heard that a lot of you are involved in treating or taking care of HIV-positive populations. Um, so just some kind of reminders. Um, you can see delayed antibody responses in those with HIV co-infection. The mean time of seroconversion in some studies was six to seven months. Um, and a small portion will have delayed seroconversion out a year or longer. Most have elevated LFPs, but not everybody, especially depending on when they're presenting, so you can't universally rely on that. And so the European, the, the NEAT consensus statements, this group, about um, testing for hepatitis C. Obviously, I think we do a good job of patients when they come into care when they're HIV positive, kind of they get their initial antibody screen for various things. And hepatitis C, I think we do a pretty good job of capturing that. But in those with continued risk factors, which is really considered any MSMs um, going forward, as well as any others with injection drug use or other risk factors, um, recommendations you need would be you know, ALT or liver function tests every six months with an antibody annually. Um, and then those with the new STI, IV drug use, should be screened three months after. And then anybody really, anybody you have a question about, you should be moving on to an HCBRNA. It's kind of the way I look at it. So something doesn't seem right, LFPs are up, but the antibody was negative, don't stop there, go on and get a hep C RNA 
So again, as I said, Ken's going to talk about staging, so I'm going to skip over this. Really, I think the, one, the important thing to say about staging that Ken will reiterate is you're going to have to do it in some form or another. Obviously, it, it medically is certainly helpful in terms of how you need to treat that patient and what other things they need, especially if you identify somebody with cirrhosis. Um, but being aware of what staging options are out there, and, and some of this is going to have to do with knowing what your local insurers will accept as evidence of staging that's adequate to access therapy. So again, there's, there's different ways and different systems to do this. Most, in terms of liver fibrosis stage, go from zero to four. And again, Ken's going to talk more about that in the next talk, along with some of the different um, approaches to fibrosis staging that are out there, whether they're laboratory test-based from blood, or they happen to be um, imaging-based techniques um, that are done. So um, I think we can skip over this now and let, let Ken talk about it. Go ahead. Backing up a second, what's the urgency about um, identifying acute hepatitis C since many people will clear it spontaneously anyway and you're not used to treat in the acute period? Right. So I agree that there's been kind of a shift. So back when we had to use interferon-based therapies, there was really a treatment advantage to identifying acute. In other words, interferon therapies were more efficacious and you could treat for a shorter period of time. Um, the, the data is still kind of in flux in terms of the DAAs and acute hepatitis C, and can you also shave some time off or treat for a shorter period of time? There's a few studies, but they've largely been conflicting, and, and I do think you're right in that I would still treat somebody with acute the same as I would a chronic right now with DAAs. I wouldn't alter my therapy. So the other indications, the biggest one probably, depending on the population you're talking about, is more almost treatment as prevention, um, preventing them from being infectious and potentially infecting other persons. And for our HIV-positive MSMs, uh, I think that is an issue. Now, some people may counter, well, if they're still a, do, in using, having those risky behaviors, they may get reinfected. But um, kind of depends on your philosophical approach, I think. But the, probably the most compelling argument would be treatment as prevention. You're right. You're going to be probably just as successful if you wait to see if they're going to clear. And we do give them some time. We don't treat them immediately. We usually, once they're identified, we think they're relatively acute. Wait about three months, um, that 12-week period, to see if there's indications that they're going to clear them. So hepatitis C is not just the liver disease, and we just want to present some of the extra hepatic manifestations. I think the one we think about most is cryoglobulinemia, mixed cryoglobulinemia, types 2 and 3. Um, if you look at, um, if you find somebody with some clinical manifestation prior to anemia, you should test them for hepatitis C, and in a lot of series, if you then test them, the majority are gonna have hepatitis C, some 80, 90%. If you kind of do the reverse and just unselectively test patients with hepatitis C, you're gonna find cryos in up to half. Most of them will not have disease-related cryoglobulinemia though. But it is something you can use um, that may help you access therapy sometimes too if they have positive cryos. Um, and you can make some argument about joint pains or something like that in cryos, you may be able to access therapy sometimes. Uh, porphyria cutanea tarda, pictured down here. Um, I'm sure you've all seen it. I think disappointingly doesn't seem to respond that well in my experience to the treatment of their hep C. You treat their hep C doesn't mean their PCP is going to go away. Um, B cell lymphoma, um, more and more epidemiologic studies pointing to an association here. Um, and even case reports, uh, war reports with treatment with interferon-based therapy, certainly of regression or better clinical outcomes of lymphoma with treatment of FC. There are even a few case reports now starting to pop up with treatments with DAA-based therapies um, and having some impact on the positive impact on these cell lymphomas. Diabetes, type 2 diabetes this has been associated, a little controversial. There was another study that came out suggesting there was not an association. In general, though, um, 
most people think there's association. Um, and again, there are some studies coming out that with treatment with DA-based therapy is that insulin sensitivity improves when patients have reduced requirements for um, hypoglycemic medications and that kind of stuff. Okay, now we'll just briefly overview the kind of HCV therapy timeline. From the identification, obviously, to when we have those subterranean left, we're the first DAs approved. And now we're over here um, uh, with both the approvals recently of Rosalvir Elvisphere and Sofosvir Velpatosphere as being the most recent two regimens approved, and Softvel being the one that now is kind of our first single tablet pangeotypic regimen with a very similar treatment approach, really, for most patient populations. And we're now at the point where we expect that efficacy results, certainly above 95%, to kind of be considered adequate. Um, for most of these therapies. And this just, again, to lay out where our regimens fall and what their targets are. So the main three, some of these are very familiar in terms of being kind of similar to the way we attack HIV. So protease inhibitors, um, HCV is uh, made as one single polyprotein that needs to be chopped up into its individual subunits to have activity. And a viral-specific protease does some of those cleavages, so we have medications that block that cleavage so you don't form functional viral proteins very similar to the way HIV protease inhibitors work. We have nucleosides or nucleotide inhibitors that work on RNA replication directly of the virus. They stop the replication. Um, that would be something like sofosfavir is the main in that category. Um, and then NS5A inhibitors. Um, NS5A is a phosphoprotein. It doesn't really have a specific enzymatic function, but we have a large number of NS5A inhibitors, and they've kind of become a component of most of our DAA regimens now. Um, they tend to be very potent drugs. We think they probably have a dual mechanism of action. They probably stop replication in some fashion. NS5A is necessary for viral replication, and it's also involved in kind of the packaging of the virus and as it leaves the cell. So they kind of have two different ways that they potentially inhibit virus replication. And this is just kind of a schematic to kind of indicate the combinations we have. Um, some are fixed dose combinations where they're all mixed together in one tablet, and others are going to be multi-tablet regimens with different combinations. Yeah. The, with the sofosphere and the 5B. Sure. With the sofosphere and the 5B, is it just, I mean, one thing is it's incredible how you don't get resistance to it. But on the other side, is it much, is it driving the efficacy of those regimens? I mean, versus, I, I think of it, sofosphere as being such, such an incredible molecule. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's I think it's both. I mean, I, I do think it's driving the efficacy. In other words, you can't take a protease, well, like if there was data that looked at like semaphore or glucotosphere and you had much higher failure rates with those two. Now those are different compounds. Obviously now we have grisoprovir elvisphere and grisoprovir is a more potent protease inhibitor with a higher resistance barrier. But I, I think it, a lot of it is the resistance barrier of the combination, right? And as you pointed out, semaphore has an exquisite resistance barrier. You can give it as monotherapy and patients are going to suppress and not develop breakthrough in general. Now, most of them relapse if you just use it by itself, but you still don't see viral resistance. Um, it's an unfit variant that goes away very quickly if it is selected. So I think a lot of the reasons phosphorus is so efficacious and such a good drug is because of its resistance barrier. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's kind of one and the same almost, or at least the way I look at it. Um, so there are some commonalities now in how we approach patients in the DAA era. Um, 
with DAAs, so genotype and subtype are still very important because your treatment regimens are going to differ and your baseline testing is going to be different. Um, you need to know fibrosis stage, but to take care of your patient, but as well to get medications approved. Um, treatment history is important because we're still at the point for most regimens where you're going to vary your treatment um, currently based on whether they've been treated in the past. And then drug interactions, Dr. Kaiser is going to talk about some of those today. Those are obviously an important consideration with DAAs. And then unfortunately, now this is probably the biggest question, even though it's the last one, is what insurance do they have? And what can I get covered for my patient? And co-infection we're going to talk about, it, but it's not really a consideration anymore from an efficacy standpoint. And these are just generalities, but now for genotype 1, we really have 12 to 16 weeks for all non-serotic patients. Rodomiron is still used for some 1A patients, and you do have to do baseline resistance testing, as we'll talk more with the Alvisphere Drosophilia regimen. Um, Genotype 2 and 3 now, with the approval of sofopatosphere, really are down to 12 weeks for really all patients. There's still a few select subgroups you may want to add rotavirin in. And again, we're expecting now cure rates over 95%. Maybe genotype 3 patients with cirrhosis, we're still not quite to 95%. We're kind of at 90%, at least based on study data. Um, and again, the guidelines, I think, are a good place to go for the most updated and then the last couple slides, just to make sure you all know the dramatic impact curing somebody of hepatitis C can have on their overall survival. This is the Van Meer article from JAMA, um, looking at um, patients in terms of survival with SVR, um, where if you get somebody and treat them to FC, their SVR looks like more like those of um, much improved survival, sorry, over patients who are not treated for their FC or had a non-response here, the mortality rates going forward. And these were all patients who, at the beginning of this study, had advanced fibrosis or sclerosis. Um, and taking it even further, in a follow-up article from the Van Meer group, if you cure patients of their HCV, their, their overall survival starts to look like a non-HCV-infected population. So in this follow-up study they had, I thought it was kind of neat that they compared them then to age-matched controls who did not have hepatitis C. And so you can see, again, patients with hep C that you don't treat or don't achieve SVR have a significantly increased mortality rate compared to age-matched controls who don't have hep C. Whereas once they're effectively treated and cured, they now start to kind of look again like their age-matched controls without FC. High cost has grabbed a lot of headlines. Um, costs are coming down. Access is improving. I think those are the main things. And these, this is from Cami Graham. I follow this from Cami. Um, you know, these prices up here are generally not what insurers pay, but we don't have a great idea of what they actually do pay. Um, <clears throat> But again, as subsequent regimens have come out, um, Elvisphere Drosophilia, the WAC price or wholesale acquisition cost about $55,000, um, Softbell $75,000. But again, what's, what insurance uh, providers actually negotiate is probably lower than that for most cases. And then this is the access across country continually changing, just kind of highlighting how fragmented it is. Um, in California, it was you know over you know, almost a year and a half ago now that we went down to F2s and requirements for drug screening and things like that all went away. Um, Colorado is going to follow similarly here, hopefully in October 1st, um, down to F2 with access to at least some regimens for any patient with F2 fibrosis and removal of a lot of, again, the drug screening um, requirements. Washington um, State actually um, removed their restrictions when uh, a suit was uh, a threat of suing the, the state Medicaid was brought about. Um, and then uh, restrictions were removed. Last slide, reinfection. So um, I think the co-infected population is probably where we do need to worry about this most. Um, and you can see in this Andrew Hill study from the UK, 
UK suggested a 22% reinfection rate within about three years. Um, I think it's important to know there certainly are co-infected patients who are at risk for reinfection, but this study did capture most of the studies involved in this kind of, it was kind of a meta-analysis for patients um, who had presented with acute infection and then were either treated or self-cleared and then continued to be followed. So I think that's obviously, that's not necessarily indicative of all HIV co-infected patients. That was a, a select, very kind of pre-selected high-risk group. They already had presented with acute infection and then continued to be followed. So I do, do think it's a little different but we certainly have seen co-infected patients in studies with reinfection. Several of the phase two or phase three um, DA treatment trials, um, this is turquoise one, did see reinfections within a relatively, this was a study of 63 patients and there were two reinfections between SVR4 and SVR12 in that study of 63 patients. They did have significant risk factors um, these two patients for reinfection and then phylogenetic sequencing showed their baseline and relapse virus is very different. Um, pretty much um, indicating, pretty good indication of reinfection. This is just the software pass through data, which we'll talk about there, so I, I won't go into this right now. We'll hit it as we go into the 